This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And yes, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel tonight, Strange Planet. I, uh, I like and I admire iconoclasts. I respect people who walk in through the outdoor. They walk against the arrows in supermarkets in, and uh, Ikea. Uh, those people, I believe, are vitally important to a healthy society and a functioning democracy. And this This program exists in part uh, to push back against official narratives, state-sanctioned reality, groupthink, and I celebrate those who have the courage to shout out the emperor has no clothes, which brings me to Tony Heller. Tony is such a person. He is deserving of a place on this radio platform. Tony has examined the scientific data underpinning the claims of global warming alarmists and found the data to be lacking. His presentations and videos challenging the state-sanctioned religion of man-made or anthropogenic climate change have been viewed by millions on YouTube and Twitter. And people often email me and ask, why don't you have a real climate scientist on? Why do I entertain these climate deniers, quote, end quote? which is a most odious and sinister phrase, that denier. I'll tell you why. Because you can see them on every newslet outlet, every news outlet, every mainstream media outlet, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I am doing my very small part to provide equal time. So if you would rather listen Uh, to another so-called expert talk about how the earth is heating up and it's all man's fault and if we don't give up our cars and private property and start living in stacked houses in large urban centers and ride public transit you have an entire universe of media outlets to choose from pick one tony heller describes himself as a whistleblower an independent thinker who's considered a heretic on both sides of the climate debate. I also like heretics. Did I mention that? Uh, 
He's enjoyed a broad career in science, education, environment, and engineering, and he utilizes the same skill set and techniques to analyze climate science claims he's, uh, that he's used in science and engineering. Tony has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology and participated in geothermal, oil shale, thermodynamics of methane hydrates, and volcanic research at Los Alamos National Labs. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and has served as a computer architect at Sandia Labs, part of the consortium team at Compaq, and the design manager for Hitachi's STSH5 microprocessor. He's a lifelong environmentalist who first testified before Congress in 1972 in support of wilderness. He fought for the Clean Air and Water Act. Tony points out that he does not receive any funding from anyone other than small donations to his blog, which works out to about $5 an hour. I can relate. He says he hates cars and would love to see 90% of them off the road. And you can read Tony's blogs and watch his vlogs at realclimatescience.com. Tony Heller, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you were recently, now I don't know if you were entirely deplatformed. Uh, what happened with you on, on YouTube recently? Well, um, my my channel had been kind of taken off. Um, it, it looked sort of like Michael Mann's hockey stick. The number of views was skyrocketing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, is up to, um, I think, six, 6 million views during September. And I had one day, I think it was like September 14th, where I had um, 400,000 views. So, so things were doing really well, and I was getting you know lots of traction. So, of course, YouTube decided they needed to um, shut me down. Um, so they, um, so I just went to make a video. Well, I, I think I just looked at my email one day last week, and it said that I had my account. I was locked out of my account. Because I had shown a video of a um, German doctor who was arrested at an anti-lockdown protest in in London, and they said that you're not allowed to question the authority of the World Health Organization. <laughs> that was their that was their motivation for taking me out. But I knew they were they were looking to take me down because um, I've been getting all kinds of emails from them for several weeks were saying that they were manually scanning my videos and just finding one complaint after another. So I can see that I've put a lot of videos out there, thousands and thousands of them, and they've got people who are manually watching them. So obviously someone's paying to find any dirt they can find, you know, any excuse they can to take me down. So my, my channel is down for a week, um, but I'm not really planning on going back to YouTube that much um, after I get back on. Um, there, there's a new um, video platform called NewTube app, and I've started using that, and I, it's much better. It's, it's got a lot more features than YouTube has. It's open source. So if somebody takes them down and someone else can come along and bring it up, um, it, it's open source and it's got great features. And as the guy who runs YouTube app pointed out, is the only innovation which YouTube has done for years is new ways to spy on and censor people. Mm -hmm. They haven't they haven't really added any new useful features. Whereas this guy's adding 
new features constantly and um, and he's very communicative and he supports free speech and so I've only been on there for five days, but I think I had 20,000 views today, so it's ramping up really fast. And of course, most of my YouTube viewers have no idea what happened to me, right? I was getting, you know, half, you know, hundreds of thousands of views a day, and then suddenly I just stopped making videos and there's no message. Um, you know, they, they don't have any way of finding it. I'm not, I, can't, I can't post messages on my own channel. So they have no way of knowing what happened to me. It's sort of like the old days of Stalin making people disappear. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so I, I, so I don't want to be in that position again. So when I get back on there in a couple of days, uh, unless they find some new excuse to shut me down again, I'm just going to post videos telling people where to find me, so that explaining what was happening and, and tell them to go look for me on YouTube app. I've got almost 100,000 followers on YouTube, so I'd like to get as many of them as possible moved over to NewTube. All right. So, again, that's NewTube app, N-E-W-T-U-B-A-P-P. Okay. It's NewTube, N-E-W-T-U-B-E dot app. Dot app. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, but but your offense in this case, uh, in YouTube's eyes, was not posting the climate uh, change videos. It it had to do with with COVID. Yeah, I just I I took somebody's video off Twitter of this German doctor who was arrested after speaking in Trafalgar Square in London, and the police just hauled him off, you know, for daring to tell the truth about COVID. Mm. And that, that was all that I did. I just po- just posted a video of the guy being arrested, and that right. was that was enough of an excuse for YouTube to take me down. Be- before I get you to sort of address uh, the various platforms or the various planks in the climate alarmist platform, like the you know the old ninety seven percent of scientists uh, consensus and so forth, I, I just want to ask you: Do you see while you were, were talking about COVID? And I don't want to dwell on it, but do you see any similarities between the way the official narrative of climate change is being addressed and the official narrative of the coronavirus pandemic is being handled? Oh, yeah, I think they're pretty much the same thing. I mean, if you look at, at what the goals of the Green New Deal were, they were to stop people from flying on airplanes you know, keep people at home, keep them from traveling, keep them from using fossil fuels. And all of those goals for the Green New Deal have been achieved through COVID lockdowns. And I hear Toronto is about to get locked down again. Is that true? Uh, yes, for the second time. Yes. Right. Based so, on based on this case-demic, not based on actual infections or hospital admissions, based on you know, the drill, you've written about it, the PCR test and so forth, which the false positives and uh, yeah, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, so I, I see that they're pretty, I see that the COVID nonsense is pretty much an extension of the global warming stuff, only they're able to achieve their goals much faster. And, you know, they've been trying to shut, the climate people have been trying to shut down the airline industry for decades. You know, I was blocked um by demonstrators driving the Heathrow Airport in London around 2003. And, um, you know, they weren't having any luck with that. Plane travel kept building up. But they've managed to pretty much wipe out most of the airline industry in just a matter of a few weeks 
with the COVID scare. So, um, yeah, the, the parallels are tremendous, and I think it's really just an extension of what's been going on all along. And the science, you know, the science with what government's doing and what scientists are saying, and and who's the censorship at all. It, it's a very close parallel. Okay, so let's let's dive in. I want to start with uh, the aforementioned ninety-seven percent of scientists. We have heard this for. Uh, well, it seems like about 15 years. So where where did that number first come from? When did we uh, I, I recall a, a, uh, an email, a tweet or something from uh, President Obama and then later John Kerry. But what's the actual origin of the 97 percent of all scientists around the world believe in in anthropogenic global warming and that th- that it has dire consequences? Um, okay, so um, I got a phone call from John Cook in Australia, or any might have been an email. I don't remember. He's he's a professor at um, some university in Australia. Um, about ten years ago, and he was very excited that he was doing this survey of climate people um, about their beliefs. And, and then a few few days later, he came out with this study. Showing that 97% of scientists um, believe it, but but that really wasn't factual at all. What he did was he just scanned through the scientific literature, tens of thousands of climate papers. He found a couple hundred where the author explicitly stated an opinion of is global warming caused primarily by man, or isn't it caused primarily by man? And I guess he said that 97% of those 200 papers um, said that global warming was primarily caused by man. There wasn't any mention about it being dangerous or or worrisome or anything like that. It was just a statement of fact. And this was just a tiny sample. It was like going around looking in papers from the Catholic church, you know, Catholic priests and saying that 97% of the letters were from people who believed that the Catholic faith was the correct faith. I mean, if you look at the total body of, of global war of climate papers, this was only a tiny percentage of them, but he just cherry picked the ones who were true believers, basically. And did did he even did even analyze the entire paper or was he basically just going off the abstract, which is kind of a summary of the of the study? I, I haven't looked at it much in detail, but what my understanding is that is that he did it off the summary. Right, yeah, right. And, and then and then Obama just took this and just he blew it up into a much bigger lie saying he tweeted 97% of climate scientists scientists believe global warming is man-made and dangerous and and you know there's no truth to that there was a, a survey of the professional members of the American Meteor- Meteorological Society in 2013 which said um, where they were asked is global warming primarily man-made I think only 52% said it was, and among professional forecasters, it's only about 35%. And they weren't even asked, is it dangerous? Because they probably would have been laughed at if they did. So Obama just, you know, Obama just liked to make up stuff like that. And then after Obama said it, then it became truth, right? Didn't matter whether there was any facts, whether it was factual or not. It was just, it became the liturgy of the global warming religion. Right, right. And I think John Kerry even took it a step further. Um, 
Now, we often hear things like average global temperature, which is kind of, I don't know, it doesn't sound right. Is there such a thing as average global temperature? What does that even mean? It's a nonsensical term for many reasons. Um, Would you really, yeah, it's like, what, what does it mean? Most of the heat in the in the earth's climate system is hidden it's latent heat and ice it's heat hidden hidden in the water so temperatures on the surface are you can't just average temperatures on the surface for a lot of reasons you have the you have the heat of a vap you know cooling caused by evaporation of water you have warming caused by the condensation of water and the same thing with melting and freezing of ice you have ocean circulation patterns it's a ridiculous concept and it's much worse than that because there's very little long-term temperature data available for the vast majority of the earth's surface if you look at where um, you know ross mckittrick at guelph i don't know if you ever talked to him he um he did he's published some papers showing how what terrible coverage the government agencies have had from the past you know the vast majority of of the high quality data in the world is from the united states you know there's a fair amount from along the southern border of canada some from western europe and the east coast of australia but for the vast majority of the earth for South America, Africa, most of Asia, Antarctica, the the Arctic, and most of Russia, the quality of the long-term data is extremely poor. So they don't really have any idea what temperatures were like 100 years ago over most of the Earth. Now, one of the uh, things we also keep hearing is, well, this was the hottest summer on record, or four of the last five summers have been the hottest summers we've had, and so forth. And, uh, I mean, you are, uh, if I can use the term, you're a weather geek. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I love, uh, when I when I read your tweets, you're uh, almost, you'll go like on a daily basis, countering many of these claims. When someone, when someone will report, well, today was the hottest the hottest day in Minneapolis in, you know, on record. And then you'll you'll go into the uh, the archives and you'll pull up the actual stats and say, no, the hottest was in 1927. And then the next hottest was in 1934. I'm, I'm making those figures up. But so talk to me about the hottest, the, the claim that, you know, the last several summers have been the hottest on record. Where does that right. come from? Yeah, so, okay, so, well, it, it's just complete nonsense <laughs> to give you the short answer, but to give you some more details, as I, as I just mentioned, the vast majority of high-quality data, um, daily temperature data on the Earth is from the United States by a wide margin. Probably 80 to 90 percent of the NOAA daily temperature data is United States data. You know, we've been in a good position here where we haven't had any, had any wars fought on our territory, and people have just been consistently keeping good, high-quality data since the end of the 19th century. And in the United States, it's summers are much cooler now than they were prior to 60 years ago. It's not even close. You know, if you read Steinbeck about the Grapes of Wrath, when five million people fled the heat and drought of the Midwest, and the moved dust out to, yeah, the dust yeah, the dust, yeah, yeah, moved out to California. The country was incredibly hot, and prior to about 1955, 
the U.S. summers in the U.S. were much hotter. We, we had incredible temperatures. And same thing in Canada. You know, Canada's hottest temperature occurred, I believe, in 19, July 1937, I think, or 1936. It was like 113 degrees Fahrenheit in Saskatchewan, I believe. And so it's it very, very similar in southern Canada, at least the United States. It was very hot from the 1910s to the mid-1950s, and summers have been much cooler ever since the mid-1950s in the United States. So it's totally fake. So the other day, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, was saying 130 deg- it was 130 degrees in Death Valley, which is arguably the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. And this is complete nonsense. Death Valley in the year 1913, the U.S. Weather Bureau has very detailed records for it. They had three days in one week when Death Valley was over 130 degrees. It was 134, 131, and 130. So this year's 130 wasn't even close to that. Plus, there's an article I found from the San Francisco Chronicle from 1859 where it was 133 degrees in um, in um, Los Angeles County from downslope winds during 1859. In the New York Times, I go through the New, New York Times archives, they have lots of mentions of temperatures over 130 degrees in Death Valley. So you, so you just get these politicians like Obama and Newsom making up fake statistics, and then they just throw it out there, and then it becomes the truth. But it's it's not based on actual data. The 1930s were much hotter than recent summers. It wasn't even close. Right. I think you mentioned the uh, Death Valley. The, the, the I think the hottest recorded temperature on Earth was in Furnace Creek, which I've been there. I, uh, I've stayed there. And uh, that was uh, – I'm not sure if that was 1913 or back in the 30s, but you're right. It was like 134 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the re- hottest recorded temperature, I believe, uh, on Earth. Where – just uh, we're heading into a break here, uh, so we'll uh, come back and delve further into this. But um, just very quickly, very quickly, where aside from the archives from newspapers, where do you collect your data on temperature? Yeah, I get it all from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They have a very good data set. Um, they have the Global Historical Climatology Network, but a subset of that which I use the most is the United States Historical Climatology Network, and they have t- about 1,286 stations, I believe, around the United States where they have very good, high-quality daily temperature data, highs and lows, going back to 1895 and even a little bit before that. So I'm just using official government NOAA temperature data, the same the same data which they use. The difference is that before they release it to the public, they manipulate it. Okay, we'll find out how they do that when we come back. Tony Heller is with us from realclimatescience.com, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
And if you have questions and comments, just keep your powder dry for the first hour, and we will open up the phone lines in the second hour to take your questions and comments. Tony is uh, with us for the full two hours, realclimatescience.com. And Tony has is um, moving his – well, not moving his videos, but he will now be um, uh, posting his, his videos to newtube.app, newtube.app. And the channel is just Tony Heller. Is that right, Tony? Yeah, that's correct. All right, newtube.app. And, of course, you can also follow him. Uh, on Twitter, is that at at Tony Climate? Uh, no, my my Twitter is Tony is is Tony underscore underscore Heller. Okay, Tony underscore yeah. Heller. All right. Uh, so the um, NASA says that the world is getting warmer. There are thermometer readings around the world, and I want to ask you about the placement of these thermometers, these temperature stations. They, they they claim they've been rising since the Industrial Revolution, and the causes are a blend of human activity and some natural variability, uh, with the preponderance of evidence saying humans are mostly responsible. According to an ongoing, and I'm reading from the website here, earthobservatory.nasa.gov earthobservatory.nasa.gov according to an ongoing temperature analysis conducted by scientists at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies the average global temperature on earth has increased by a little more than 1 degree celsius or 2 degrees fahrenheit since 1880 two thirds of the warming has occurred since 1975 at a rate of roughly 0.15 to 0.2 degrees centigrade per decade uh, so what what is wrong with or where is the uh, NASA Earth Observatory wrong? Well, th- what they're saying is just propaganda. As I pointed out before the break, they don't have they have very little long term data for the vast majority of the Earth's surface. So when they're just making up numbers largely, and if and if you look at older versions of the temperature record, like um, I, I posted a video the other day showing how it had been changed since around 1989. In 1989, NOAA said that um, that Earth cooled from I believe 1921 to 1979, but now they show a lot of warming during that same period. And there was a um, graph from the very famous, well-publicized graph from the National Center for, Mas- for Atmospheric Research from 1974, which showed a huge amount of cooling from the 1940, from about 1940 until 1970. But now, if you look at the current graphs from NOAA and NASA, that's gone. They've completely erased that. So. Th- it, it, like I said, it's just propaganda. There's no scientific basis for what they're saying. And if we go back further, you know, what they're trying to do is they want to blame what they they claim. They claim there's this temperature rise. They want to blame it on carbon dioxide. But if we go back in time to periods like 6,000 years ago, when Stonehenge was built, the Arctic was ice free. And there were trees growing all the way up to the edge of the Arctic Ocean. I mean, um, Dr. Tim Ball from Vancouver, you know, has pointed, been pointing, you know, Canada's senior climatologist, has been pointing this out for years. So it was, we know it was much warmer 6,000 years ago than it is now, but carbon dioxide levels were much lower. We also know that Earth was much warmer um, 1,000 years ago during the medieval warm period. 
Of course, Michael Mann has come along and tried to erase that, but the evidence is overwhelming based on glaciers. There were very few glaciers in North America a thousand years ago. There were very few glaciers in the Alps. Um, and then most of the glaciers formed during the Little Ice Age, um, going up until about they reached their peak maybe around 1850, and then they've been melting since 1850. But there's no there's no correlation with carbon dioxide. It's just you know, they've, they've made up – there's tons of money pouring into the scientific community and the academic community to keep this global warming story going. And these people are just consultants. You know, they're being paid to, to, to make up stories about global warming, so they do it. So when they're measuring the temperature, when they're taking Earth's temperature, are these a combination of – temperature stations on the ground and also satellite temperatures of the various uh, levels of the atmosphere? What are they measuring? Well, the the, the stuff which you hear, you know, the, the global warming stuff is based on surface temperatures. It's based on thermometers on the ground. And they also claim that they have data from the ocean, which is incredible. It's even worse than the data from the land. Uh, but the satellite temperatures are, are largely ignored because they show much less warming than than um, NOAA than NASA and NOAA are advertising. So you know there are some good satellite data sets, like from the, the University of Alabama at Huntsville, they have a good data set, but it shows much less warming than than the surface temperature record does. So NASA, you know, the space administration ignores their own satellite data because it gives them the wrong answer for funding. These uh, temperature stations, do, do you know how roughly how many there are and who decides where they are placed? Well, yeah. Okay, so it, depending on which version of the data set you look like, look at it, it varies tremendously. Right now, NOAA has a pretty large set of stations, I don't know, 30,000 or something. And these were collected, most of them were collected by a group in Berkeley, Berkeley Earth. Um, but if you, and these are just historic, random historical records which people kept in their backyards or newspapers. Um, it, so there's nothing really consistent to the database. You know, outside of the United States, once again, the United States has, has had the Weather Bureau collecting great data for a very long time. But most of the global data is just random garbage. And if you go in and actually look at these stations, they're complete garbage. They're, they have missing data. They don't make any sense. You'll have one station trending upwards and another station a mile away, which is trending downwards. And, and it's pretty obvious that... Um, you know, they're just using garbage data. They're they're throw, throwing put garbage data in. They use very dodgy techniques for analyzing it, and they come up with an answer that they want. I, I've looked a little. I, I spend most of my time looking at the United States temperature record. A few times I've dabbled into to calculating my own global temperature record, and I realized right away that you could come up with any shape graph you wanted, depending on which stations are used and which techniques he used for analyzing it so they just came up with a set of stations which works for their narrative and and that's what they're going with well i'm wondering though for instance of those thirty thousand roughly temperature stations 
how many of them are located in urban centers? Maybe at one time they were out in the country, but then through urban sprawl and so forth, they're now in urban centers and whether that might tilt the uh, the data because these are these are basically heat sinks these urban centers well yeah certainly the urban centers cause a huge skew the data tremendously because if you like if you like look at the data from south america there's only a, a, maybe two or three long term stations in south america and one of them is in buenos aires right in the middle of a, one of the worst heat islands in the world. And temperatures have risen a lot in Buenos Aires over the last century because of all the concrete and the growth of the city. And then what happens is because that's the only long-term station they've got in that area, and they've got all these fragmented little pieces of data from other stations around Argentina and Uruguay, what they do is they homogenize the data, so they contaminate the rural stations around there with the urban contaminated data from Buenos Aires, and and, uh. and that and 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 that is, you know, the so even if you have a, only have a small handful of urban stations, those are the ones which dominate because they're the ones with the long term temperature, you know, temperature record. Right now, the problem though is. It seems to me, even if we if we have a cold snap uh, because they've moved the goalposts and now they they don't use the the term global warming. Now it's climate change. And uh, it seems to me they want to have it both ways. So now they look at uh, even record low temperatures or uh, extreme weather, which we'll get into in more detail uh, in, in, in a moment. Um, when did that happen? When did they stop talking about global warming and start talking about climate change? Yeah, I think um, about 10 years ago, there was this big concern that there was this global warming hiatus. Um, Richard Trenberth at the National Center for Atmospheric Research had a famous climate gate email where he said, where the heck is global warming? You know, we can't, we can't account for the missing heat and it's a travesty that we can't. So, so that was when they switched over from, okay, well, we can't, the earth isn't really warming, so we, we can't blame that on carbon dioxide. So now we're just going to take every bad weather event and call it climate change and say it never happened before and blame that on carbon dioxide. And I, and I think that's been the main thing going on ever since then. And, 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 what, and that just completely relied that whole – Extreme, well, I know you said you're going to get into that in a minute, but the whole extreme weather climate change link is just based on ignorance of history, just that people, they they know that people don't know about past bad weather. And, and they can show it on, you know, we have a fire in California, and they show it on CNN over and over and over and over again and just makes people think that the whole world's burning up. Uh, we, we will uh, address uh, wildfires in California. Four million acres, uh, I believe, to date have burned. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about extreme weather and whether there is any connection to carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere. Back with more of my conversation with Tony Heller, Real Science, uh, realclimatescience.com. And his, uh, his videos can be found at newtube.app. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
So, Tony, I, tr- I want to try to understand the, s- the science behind the, the, the climate change um, logic here. The idea that, that carbon dioxide, uh, the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is f- roughly 400 parts per million, uh, how is, I mean, is this, do we look to chemistry to figure this out or is it physics? How, I'm trying to get inside their head. How do they believe that increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will cause an increase in global temperatures? What is their science? Well, um, I've, I worked on radiative transfer models for the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And so it's sort of the traditional theory which has been thrown out there is that you get heat radiating, infrared light radiating off of the surface of the Earth. The Earth's the Earth surface gets warm by sunlight. And then you get infrared light radiating off the surface. Um, and then in certain spectral bands, it gets absorbed by carbon dioxide molecules on the way up, which excites the molecule. Then the idea is that it releases a new photon back down towards the ground, which sort of traps heat. And, you know, this is a principle which has been understood for a very long time, more than 100 years, um, that this idea of the greenhouse effect. But it's also been understood for a long time. And if you look at the radiative transfer models, which I've worked on, the effect is minimal. Most of the greenhouse effect from carbon dioxide occurs in the first 30 parts per million. And then when you add more carbon dioxide after that, the increase in the amount of heat, which it's, it's retaining, becomes less and less because it becomes close to saturation. There's enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now to absorb almost all of the radiation in the spectral bands of carbon dioxide um, as it is. And this was shown by Newt Angstrom in the year 1901, experimentally. So it's been known for 120 years. So what happened was James Hansen came along. He realized that nobody was going to believe that carbon dioxide itself was a big problem. So about 20 years ago, he came up with his feedback theories that, you know, what happens is you get this little bit of warming caused by carbon dioxide, but then that melts the polar ice caps, and which makes the... the lowers the Earth's albedo, and then you get more sunlight absorbed by the oceans, and that heats up, and just spirals out of control, and pretty soon everything burns up, and all the polar bears die, and the people die, and the cities drown, and all that. So it's not really the carbon dioxide itself that was traditionally the problem. It was the feedbacks, but now they've they've just completely blown all that away. And now they just fearmonger about carbon dioxide, and it doesn't really have any. It has very little scientific basis. So the feedback theory. I mean, has yeah. that been published in peer-reviewed journals? Has it been, has it been properly vetted, or has it just been accepted whole as bolus? Well, I'm I'm sure I'm certain that Hansen has published it in journals, but the fact that something's peer-reviewed doesn't mean that it's valid you know most um, you know most peer-reviewed science that i've looked at is just complete garbage um but yeah but that but that's what it's based on but they've sort of thrown that out they don't even talk about the feedbacks anymore now it's just scary carbon dioxide's going to burn us up so this rate radiative transfer model is that what you called it uh what about the role of of water vapor or methane 
Yeah, water vapor is by far the dominant greenhouse gas in the mid-latitudes. Um, and and, and it, the, the spectral bands of water vapor are much wider than they are for carbon dioxide. And they essentially all overlap with the carbon dioxide bands. So if you have a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere like we typically do in the summer, um, the carbon dioxide has almost no green has almost no additional greenhouse effect. Um, carbon dioxide probably has more effect down in Antarctica, um, where there's very little water vapor in the atmosphere. But in the mid latitudes, where you know the United States and Canada and Europe and most of the world's population is located, um, carbon dioxide has very little impact on summer temperatures. So just to repeat, you're saying that after 30 parts per million, uh, there is no – there's no substantial radiative transfer happening with carbon dioxide. It's, well, it's kind of the laws of diminishing returns. Right. It, it's, you, you get less and less effect from adding more carbon dioxide above 30 parts per million. And we're up – where we're up now, it's – it's just it's a very minimal increase in the amount of um, effect, and, and there was a very famous paper by this from NASA in 1971 by Rasul and Schneider, who were NASA's top climatologists, and they explained this in great detail that you can't have a runaway greenhouse effect. So they said even if you increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by a factor of 10, it still wouldn't produce a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, and later this all, um, Schneider later on changed his mind at the end of the decade when he realized there was more money to be made in global warming than in global cooling at that time. And they actually predicted that there would be a new ice age within 50 years. I remember, been- I remember seeing, maybe I saw it online, but I saw uh, uh, it was Amer- a scientific American headline to that effect. You know, be- beware global uh, cooling, beware the next ice age. That was all the rage back in the uh, in the uh, the early 1970s. We'll take a quick time out, Tony, and we'll come back and and pick up on some of these points. Tony Heller, RealClimateScience.com, and uh, his new video platform, NewTube.app. Back with more. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Uh, Tony, I've talked to Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, I had him on uh, Coast to Coast AM with me, and he said that at 400 parts per million carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, we're really uh, on a carbon dioxide starvation diet i think he he called it because uh for optimum plant growth you need about 1200 parts per million and he he cited farmers that will pump carbon dioxide into their greenhouses to that level 1200 parts uh per million um what are your thoughts on that well yeah i mean the nasa has stated quite openly that earth has gotten greener over the last 50 years and it's probably largely due to the increase in carbon dioxide carbon life is if you you look at remember photosynthesis from you know elementary school they taught you that 
what plants need to grow is they need sunlight, they need water, they need chlorophyll, and they need carbon dioxide. That's where the carbon material which the plant's made of comes from, from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if, if there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the plants grow faster. And most of our coal beds um, you know, were came from, you know, my undergraduate degrees in geology, and geologists were always considered the traditional climate scientists until climate modelers hijacked the term. But most of our coal beds formed during the Carboniferous period when carbon dioxide levels started out much higher than they are now. And this caused a huge amount of life, you know, vegetation to grow, which then the plants died, they went, they've fell into peat beds until later turned into coal. So carbon dioxide levels are, car, higher carbon dioxide levels are very good for life. In fact, if you go back 540 million years to the, to the Cambrian era, that was when the greatest explosion of life on Earth occurred. Um, carbon dioxide levels were at their all-time peak, about, about 20 times higher than they are now. And life exploded in the oceans, and corals and shellfish evolved at that time, which shows us that the ocean acidification stuff is nonsense. You know, it's, there's no scientific – there's no question in, in the geologic community that, carbon, that life has thrived at much higher carbon dioxide levels than they are now. Is there any level of carbon dioxide concentration that would be injurious to humans? Yeah, I'm certain, certainly if you got up, I think something like, so I think on submarines, carbon dioxide levels can get up to like 8,000 parts per million, and that's probably not healthy. And even on a train, if you're on a crowded train, carbon dioxide levels can get up to 6,000, 7,000 parts per million. And, you know, it obviously... If if you're not getting an, if you've got too much carbon dioxide, you're not getting enough oxygen. It's going to, you know, reduce the amount of oxygen getting into your blood vessels in your brain, and that's not a good thing. But we're nowhere near that point now. And in fact, when you exhale, your lungs breathe in oxygen, and you exhale carbon dioxide. You're exhaling about forty thousand parts per million carbon dioxide, um, which is you know, a hundred times higher than what you inhale. So your lungs are used to having 40,000 parts per million in them. Interesting. All right. Now, um, we'll, we'll get into this in the next hour as well, and we'll open up the phone calls, but let's, let's start the discussion on a number of other sort of planks in the, uh, the climate, uh, alarmists platform. And one of those is melting sea ice that the, as you mentioned, there, there were periods in our history when there was no ice at the North or South pole, but we are now in, basically we're still in a kind of an interglacial period, right? We still have ice, um, in, 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 in the North and South pole, but to the argument that the ice is melting, let's say in the Arctic and we'll, we'll deal with the Antarctic later. Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, the, for during the 1970s, we had this Ice Age scare, right? And I've got an article from the New York Times about how the U.S. and Soviet Union were mounting these big white-scale studies about the large increase in the amount of ice in the Arctic and whether that led to ice ages. And the, and the ports in um, Iceland were blocked with ice during the 1970s for the first time in 100 years. So during the 1970s, it was very cold. 
Um, a lot of ice built up in the Arctic. You know, the, the polar ice cap in the Arctic Ocean became very thick. And then um, starting around the early 1980s, it started to melt again. There was, there, was, um, there was a lot of ice loss during the first half of the 20th century, going up to about 1960s, and then the ice started building up again. But then since about 1980, it's been declining again, so it's very cyclical. Um, and right now we're in a period where the Arctic ice is declining. And so, they're, of course, they're saying it's due to carbon dioxide, but it probably doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, there was all kinds of – I've got hundreds of newspaper stories from the 1920s, people saying in the 1930s, ice is disappearing. Um, there was a, a famous uh, – probably the best-known Arctic expert, um, Dr. Hans Allman from Sweden and Caltech University. He's, he he said in 1939 that the glaciers of Greenland and Norway are melting so quickly there's a danger of catastrophic collapse. This is from 1939. But then we went through this cold period in the 70s. The ice came back. And, of course, that's where they, where Arctic alarmists start all their graphs is right at the end of this cold period around 1979. Uh, I'm just reading here from the World Wildlife uh, website, worldwildlife.org, uh, stating we lose Arctic sea ice at a rate of almost 13% per decade. And over the past 30 years, the oldest and thickest ice in the Arctic has declined by a stunning 95%. True or false? Well, there's probably some truth to that, but once again, it goes back to why did they start 30 years ago? We have we have Arctic ice records going back 100 years. There was um, a report that the Department of Energy put out a report in 1985, which showed Arctic ice going back 100 years, and there was a big decline from around 1920 until the mid-1950s. Um, so they ignore all that, right? They, they start... They start right at the peak in 1979. It's like if you start at the top of a mountain, any direction you look is going to be downhill. And so right. what they do is they, they cherry pick the peak date and start their graphs from then. Well, you, you've, you've posted a number of videos, an entire series on how the data is manipulated because of the start date. And I know on radio, without benefit of, of uh, visuals, it's kind of hard Maybe well, it would be for me to explain this, but you're much better at this than I am. Yeah. But so, just yeah, talk to me a little bit about not only for sea ice, but sea levels and and forest fires and and uh, extreme weather, uh, property destruction. You, you presented a number of graphs, and it it it's all man, you say manipulated based on when they start, the, you know, illustrating the data. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what they do. They find a low point or a high point, an inflection point to start their graphs at, and then say, um, fires are going up since such and such date, or sea ice is going down since such and such date, or heat, you know, they, they do this with heat waves, they do with everything. But if you go back and you look at the longer term record, you can see what they did, that they, they just picked a low point or a high point which to suit their purposes. And with forest fires, that's a great example. You know, the burn acreage in the United States was much higher during the 1930s, about 10 times higher during the 1930s 
or five or ten times higher in the 1930s than it is now. What they do is they go back and they start right around, I think, they think they start their forest fire graphs around 1963, I believe. But if you look at the data before that, there was much more burn acreage. And if you go back and I've researched government papers about pre-industrial era burn acreage, which they've, which they've established from looking at tree ring data, they, they said there was at least 10 times as much burn acreage in the United States prior to when um, humans settled here. And, they, and there was an article in the New York Times from 1993 talking about these massive fires, which they used to have in California, which came about once every five years. They were associated with La Nina events. They burned major conflagrations across the California mountains. And they said the western United States was a very smoky place before humans lived here. Right. I mean, when you think of it on the face of it, the idea that if uh, if you were to turn the temperature up in your house, the thermostat, set it one degree higher or even five degrees higher, that all of a sudden the house is going to go up in flames uh, on that level alone. And obviously I'm, I'm simplifying. It makes no sense. But we'll uh, take a time out. Top of the hour awaits on the other side. More Tony Heller and your phone calls right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Live. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, 50,000 watts, Zuma Radio here in Toronto. Uh, hello to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those of you streaming us live on zoomerradio.ca, the Zuma Radio app, which is absolutely fantastic, the, um, the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And those of you who've gathered in the live YouTube chat, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Tony Heller from RealClimateScience.com is here. He's challenging all of the major tenets of the climate alarmists, wildfires, sea levels, melting ice, global temperatures, extreme weather. Uh, we're also opening up the phone lines this hour for questions and comments for Tony in the greater Toronto area. You can call 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740, 1-866-740-4740. Again, Tony describes himself as a whistleblower, independent thinker, who's considered a heretic on both sides of the climate debate. He's enjoyed a broad career in science, education, environment, and engineering. And he utilizes the same skill set and technique to analyze climate science claims as he uses in science and engineering. Tony has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology and participated in geothermal oil shale thermodynamics of methane hydrates and volcanic research at Los Alamos National Labs. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and has served as a computer scientist, or sorry, a computer architect at Sandia Labs, part of the consortium team at Compaq, 
and the design manager for Hitachi's STSH5 microprocessor. He's a lifelong environmentalist who first testified before Congress in 1972 in support of wilderness. He fought for the Clean and, uh, Air and Water Act, and he points out he does not receive any funding from anyone other than small donations to his blog, which uh, works out to about $5 an hour. He says he hates cars and would love to see 90, 90% of them off the road. You can read his blogs and watch his vlogs at Climate Science. Sorry, realclimatescience.com, realclimatescience.com. And his new video platform is found at newtube.app, newtube.app. And uh, it's under uh, the, the channel is called Tony Heller. Why don't you like cars, Tony? Well, I'm a cyclist and I've been hit by cars a few times. So. <laughs> Uh, and they make you know pollution. Um, I hate it when I'm riding my bike up in the mountains and there's you know having to breathe car exhaust. So, so I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, I like taking the car out on the highway when I've got to drive a long distance, but uh, around town they're incredibly annoying. Right. So you know, you're obviously you're you're concerned about air pollution, the quality of air, as we as all good stewards of the earth should be. Uh, but we often hear about carbon dioxide and that term conflated with air pollution. Why is why do they how do they get away with that? Um, because most people don't understand science very well. I mean, car- carbon dioxide is a colorless, odorless glass gas and it's an essential component of life if we didn't have carbon dioxide we would have no life on earth and that the way that it's been demonized is just senseless you know we we know from geologic history that life grows much better at higher levels of carbon dioxide and we know that um, it doesn't cause more extreme weather we know that the planet survived fine with in and the environment survived fine with carbon dioxide levels 10 or 20 times higher than they are now okay so let's get back to the extreme weather and i want to circle back to uh the wildfires four million acres in in uh, california uh governor newsom is blaming climate change global warming uh, but i i realize that it's of an incredible oversimplification i made the analogy of imagine turning the thermostat in your house up a degree or even five degrees or even 10 degrees and and expecting the house to burn down it's probably not a very apt analogy but you know the idea that that uh, one degree change could cause forest fires is that is that possible does that make any sense well what do you say it makes absolutely no sense at all um, and, and let me give you some statistics to show just how ridiculous what his claims are. So the largest forest fire in U.S. history occurred um, this week or last week in the year 1910. Three million acres burned up in six hours um, along the border of Idaho and Montana. In six hours. Wow. That's almost as much as is burned in all of California this year. Another thing is that Gavin Newsom himself has said that 90% of the, more than 90% of the fires in California were started by humans. So what does that have to do with climate change? That's just stupid people, right? Right. And how much of it is, as uh, President Trump has maintained and others, that this is poor forest management? In other words, uh, you know, I, I remember there used to be a thing called, you know, they would have controlled fires 
uh, and um, and then all, all, all along came the the big Smokey the Bear um, PC public service announcements, probably starting in the 1960s. And uh, they stopped doing these a lot of these controlled fires. How much of it is poor forest management? Almost all of it. Um, I used to be a wilderness ranger for the U.S. Forest Service, and I, I go hiking pretty much every single day with the dogs up in in the um, um, Medicine Bow National Forest here in Wyoming, where I live. And we have a huge fire burning here. You know about. 50 miles away right now. It's one of the one of the largest in Wyoming history. And it's in the, the Medicine Bow National Forest where I go hiking. And I go up there and I take pictures all the time of this incredibly overgrown mess of a forest they've got up there. Like you said, Smokey the Bear came along in the mid in the 1950s. They they stopped allowing fires to burn. And now you've got this massive amount of litter, kindling wood on the floor of the forest. And it was inevitable, you know. The, the forest, the forest where I go, went hiking today, they're not burning. But when somebody lights a match in there, they will. You know, they're they're incredibly overgrown. And I post these pictures on my blog all the time and on Twitter of dead wood lying all over the place. All it's going to take is one person with a match to set the whole place up. And that same thing's going on in California, right? We haven't allowed fires to burn, so. When you do get the fires, they're going to be much larger than they were um, previously. And I, I, I'm from Los Alamos, New Mexico, and no place has been hit harder with huge fires over the last 20 years than Los Alamos has. All of the forest west of the city burned up, and many of the houses in the city burned up too, in forest fires in the year 2000 and the year 2011. But now you go back there. Now I go back there when I can. I can't go there now because the governors had the state locked down for six months. But what? But when I was back there last summer, all that burn area from the 2011 fire is now full of beautiful greenery and new aspen trees and new oak trees. And the forest is healthy again because that fire came through. It burned out all of this massive, overgrown, sickly forest. And now it's able to return the nutrients to the soil. And now we have a beautiful forest growing up there again. And where I, where I worked as a wilderness ranger in, in the mountains of New Mexico and north of Santa Fe, they had massive forest fires in the 1890s, which burned all of the pretty much all of the western slope of the San Gabriel de Cristo Mountains up and down from Santa Fe up into Colorado. And now those are the most beautiful, tallest aspen groves in the world as a result of those 1890 fires. So humans have this idea that fires are a bad thing and they're caused by man's sins. You know, very primitive beliefs which go back thousands of years. We cause this, we're, we're, we're being punished for driving cars or or, or for being greedy or whatever, but that's not what's going on at all. It's just the forest needs fire. We haven't allowed the fire to burn for decades and decades. So when we do get fires now, they're really big. And then they're a huge problem now because we've allowed people to build their homes up in the forest. And then so they people build their homes in the forest. They build their home right up next to a bunch of trees. Then the forest catches on fire and the tree burns up and their house burns up and, and they're surprised that this happens. But you, know, you get forest fires in the forest. It's always been that way. Uh, Frank is on the line from Buffalo. Hello, Frank. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. 
Yeah. Uh, hello, Richard. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Mr. Heller, I was just wondering, what what do you think, what is your opinion, um, what is the end game here? What what is uh, Where are these scientists and others, um, true believers, is, um, if, there, if there are such a thing, is is this all about money? Is the, the, the scientific community just trying to um, continue their funding? Um, is it about a redistribution of wealth away from developed countries? Or what, what, what do you think the end game is here? Well, well, I think for the vast majority of academics, it's just about keeping their funding. And, and it's a great question. Thanks, Frank, by the way. Um, so a good, very good friend of mine was Dr. Bill Gray from Colorado State University, who passed away four years ago. He was the world's leading tropical meteorologist. He's the guy who invented modern hurricane forecasting. And um, he, he got funding from NOAA um, every year from the mid 1960s until the year 1993, when Al Gore became vice president. And Al Gore called him up and said, I'm having this global warming meeting in Washington. Will you please come attend? And Bill said, sure, I'll, I'll come attend your meeting, but you need to know that I'm not a big believer in your theories. Well, guess what happened? His funding got cut off. He never got another penny out of the government. And everyone who's in academia involved with climate stuff knows what the game is. If you go along with the global warming game, say the right words, you're going to get funding. If you don't, you're going to get cut off. You're going to get ostracized. Um, you'll probably lose your job. Bill didn't lose his job because he was a very you know, famous, well-vetted, tenured professor. But for lots of people, they do. So they just go along and play the game. So for the vast majority of them, it's just a matter of if, if they want to get the research grants, they've got to say the right things to keep their funding coming. But there's a few people who are heavily into the politics of it, too, like Michael Mann from Penn State University and Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University. And these people are actually involved with politicians. They were frequent. They frequented the White House with under Obama, and so they have they have other objectives besides just the keeping their families fed with grant money. And and like we were I was discussing with um, Richard at the beginning of this show, to me everything that's gone on this year with shutting down the airlines, keeping people at home keeping people from driving their cars. This is all just an extension of the Green New Deal, which is what the been the government's goal or somebody's goal all along. Thank you for the call, Frank. Uh, oh, did you have a follow-up, Frank? I just wanted to say, so the, the, I wanted to ask, so the people controlling the funding are the ones that, I mean, really have the power then? Yeah, exactly. The um, the funding is controlled by politicians, right? They're the ones who decide how much money goes out to to different agencies. They're they're ones they're they're the ones who decide who heads up the agencies. So the politicians control the funding. The funding controls the science. And President Eisenhower, in his farewell speech in 1961, his very famous military-industrial complex speech, warned about this very specifically: the danger of that we were that research was being taken over by government funding and now the, and this and the equal and opposite danger that a technical elite was going to take over public policy which is exactly what's happened yes i mean we have public health officials now that are ruling by edict and decree and uh you know uh, toronto's top doctor you know orders the city to lock down 
who says this person is our top doctor? Uh, she doesn't even see patients from what I understand. Why is she an innovator? Is she, you know, is she a, a brilliant uh, scientist? Uh, we have no idea, but, but she basically has the premier's ear and uh, you're right that we are now entering into a, a, a period where uh, highly paid bureaucrats and technocrats are calling the shots. And this is odious. It's, it's very disturbing. Uh, I want to move on to um, to flooding. This is the other thing we hear all the time. We're having the worst flooding in history. We had some some bad flooding in uh, Quebec last year up here in Canada. Uh, and again, we were told this is the worst flooding we've ever had. Uh, well, Mr. Weather Geek, what say you? <laughs> yeah, these claims of worst flooding are just total nonsense. If you look at you know, and look at just look in Wikipedia for the hundred most deadly floods. None of them have happened recently. Now, the the dead, the worst decade for flooding was the 1930s. There was a flood in 1931, around this time of year in 1931 in China, which killed like 3.5 million people and left 50 million people homeless. Um, and there were terrible floods all during the 1930s. In 1937, there was this horrible flood along the Ohio River in the United States, which left like a million people homeless. The worst flood in U.S. history occurred in 1927 um, along the Mississippi River. The, the Mississippi River flooded for six months, um, and it drove millions of descendants of slaves who had homesteaded along the Mississippi River, it drove them off their land and they moved up to northern cities, which completely changed the demographics of the United States, was that 1927 flood. There were terrible floods in 1913. Um, it was called the greatest cataclysm in history um, along the Ohio River, all along the, up in the east and in, um, in the uh, Midwest in 1936. I've got an article from the um, from a from an Australian newspaper talking about this massive flooding in 1936 in March of 1936. They said, and the article said all of Eastern America is flooded. And my grandfather was in a business meeting in Pittsburgh on March 21st, 1936. He had to be evacuated from downtown Pittsburgh by boat. And it, it, there's tremendous history of floods. I, I go through old newspaper articles and look this up, and all these claims that we're having record floods now are just based on people who are either either willfully or non-willfully ignorant of history. It's simply not true what they're saying. And, and what about hurricanes? We're told now they're far more intense. We're getting more hurricanes during hurricane season. They're deadlier. What, what, what say you to that? Yeah, well, okay, so most of the that, that that this is just really really bad statistics that people are using. Now they can detect hurricanes that are out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but um, seventy or eighty years ago, it was very unlikely that people would have even known about them unless a ship happened to pass through um, where that maybe more than seventy years ago. But unless a ship happened to pass through. Where the hurricane was, they wouldn't have known about it. And Chris Lanzi, for, who's the, like the chief scientist at the National Hurricane Center, is writing a paper about this, showing how 
we don't have any idea how many tropical storms and hurricanes were occurring out in the middle of the ocean from historical records. All we know is what made landfall. And if you look at hurricanes which have made landfall in the United States, they're way down. The worst year for hurricanes in the United States was 1886 when we were hit by seven hurricanes. And the presidency of Grover Cleveland, there were the United States was hit by 27 hurricanes, which is by far the most we've ever had. And they've declined. There's, we've had fewer and fewer. We, you know, hurricanes have declined considerably since the 1880s. And for major hurricanes, the worst periods were um, around the 1940s and 1950s. So these claims that hurricanes are getting worse are based largely on the fact that we have better detection capability now. Um, we, we, we catch, we know where every single hurricane, and we have airplanes flying through them and they find the absolute highest wind speed in, in a hurricane now, you know, which is 200 feet above the ocean surface. Whereas in the past, we, the only wind speeds we knew were if a hurricane happened to hit an anemometer on the ground. So it was just hit and miss, whereas now they, they're going to find out what absolutely the highest hurricane wind speed are. So it, it, it's sampling bias. It's not climate. It's, it, this is really, really bad junk science that we're being fed about hurricanes becoming more common and then becoming more intense. We just have two minutes here for the before the break. We'll start the conversation here and finish up on this point after. But what would be the mechanism, according to the climate alarmist logic, whereby an increase in carbon dioxide could cause more intense weather? Well, okay, so the, the original theory behind that was that it makes the oceans warmer and this um, – and having the oceans warmer causes more, puts more moisture in the atmosphere, which causes heavier snow, and it also and also warmer oceans cause larger hurricanes. Um, was was sort of the basis, but it's just sort of taken off. There's not really any logic behind it. This point, just religion, based on the idea that man, humans are bad. Humans are burning oil and we're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we're being punished for it. it, it I mean, that's pretty much the level we're at. It's not really science that we're dealing with. In terms of the, the, the ocean level or the, sorry, the ocean temperatures, uh, yeah. any, are they warming and can that be attributed if they are to underwater volcanic activity? Um, I don't really you know, have a good sense for what ocean temperatures, you know, the long-term trend of ocean temperatures are. I mean, ocean temperatures are largely determined by thermohaline patterns. You know, that salinity of, you, you get these circulation, you know, salt water is heavier than, than fresh water is. So you get these thermohaline patterns. This is pretty complicated. And this was Bill Gray's specialty was, but they, they drive the ocean currents and they bring cold water up from the bottom sometimes. And then other times this water stagnates at the top and warms. And this is what causes like El Nino's and La Nina's um, you know, is, is these thermal is stuff related to thermohaline patterns. So the whole idea of just people don't really know what long-term trends of the oceans are would be my answer to that. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. Come back. More phone calls await 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740, toll free from out of town. 1-866-740-4740.
Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And you can say hello to me at Richard Serrett on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Tony Heller with us for the full two hours. And uh, you can view Tony's video postings up at YouTube. Dot app, N-E-W, new, tube, T-U-B-E, dot, app, A-P-P. And uh, the, the website for Tony is realclimatescience.com. I want to go to the, uh, the live chat uh, and get a question here. This is from George. He asks, you sort of addressed this earlier, but this is kind of a slightly different angle. How much of the climate alarmist's agenda is driven by the desire for wealth redistribution. What do you think, Tony? Well, I, I think there's certainly, you know, the tendency for academics is to be very left-wing. I, I suspect that a lot of the lower-level people involved in this that would be part of their agenda. I don't believe that that's the larger agenda um, that's going on here, though. Like I said, I, I think this is all tied into the same thing with the COVID agenda. Um, and I think there's much more sinister things going on than, than that coming from the people at the top who are funding all this. But certainly there are, I'm sure there's lots of people with sort of socialist, communist views in the academic community who see that as one of the advantages of you know, these carbon taxes and, and other things which they want to implement. It, it does seem odd, to say the least, that they, uh, they these climate, climate alarmists uh, and the United Nations, the, the IPCC, are targeting the West. Canada, uh, for example, which uh, our, our yearly contribution to carbon dioxide emissions is minuscule, and yet they want to shut down our uh, our oil and gas industry, which would have a, just a, a crushing uh, effect on the economy, is having a crushing effect on the economy. And yet, India or China, so for example, China, uh, which I think they're just their their new coal burning plants coming on stream this year will produce more carbon dioxide uh, than what is currently being produced in the United States and Canada combined. Why is, why is China getting a free pass? Well, you know, Donald Trump tweeted in 2012 that global warming is a hoax created by the Chinese in order to hurt American industry. And I don't know if that's completely true, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, it's, it's obvious, you know, when Obama made his agreement with China um, around 2012, the, the agreement was that China would be continue to increase their emissions until the year 2030. They're already the world's largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world, and it's growing very rapidly. You know, the United States CO2 emissions have been declining for like 15 years, and China's are skyrocketing, but Obama made a deal where the Chinese could keep the growing their emissions, and the United States had to cut ours. So it looks like pretty definitive sabotage of American industry. And it, it also shows that 
Obama wasn't serious about reducing emissions because the only way you're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions is if you get China and India and other Asian countries to do it, and that hasn't been part of the deal. No one's told, nobody's asked China and Asia to reduce their emissions. And um, well, I, I, let, let, I had a question, but I want to go to uh, the YouTube live chat again. And uh, why, why? Asks, what is your view, Tony, on impending an impending mini ice age? Will one happen? Yeah, I'm. That's not really a topic which I've looked at, and I don't like to make predictions. I mean, certainly historically, there's been a um, um, tendency during periods of very low solar activity, like we're having now, for a long term to be there to be a cooling trend, like during the monitor minimum. Um, after quite a few years of low solar activity, Earth's temperature got quite cold. Um, and it's possible that that could happen, but that's not really an area which I've looked into too much, and, and I really hesitate to make any sort of predictions. Um, so I know a lot of people are interested in that, but that isn't an area which I've focused on. All right. Uh, I want to address sea levels. And we're told that uh, they're rising and uh, coastal areas will have to be evacuated and, and so forth. Miami, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the sea levels are rising in places like Miami and New York, et cetera, et cetera. What does is, what is your data tell you about the level of uh, the oceans? Well, so sea level has risen 400 feet over the last 20,000 years. Um, so, um, it's, and, mo and almost all of that rise occurred prior to about 8,000 years ago. Sea level rose very quickly from about 16,000 years ago to about 8,000 years ago. And since then, it's been much slower. Um, the, the current rate of sea level rise really hasn't changed significantly over the last 150 years. If you look at if you look at a few of the there's only a few long-term tide gauges around the world. One of them's in New York City. There hasn't been any significant change in the rate of sea level rise in New York City since Abraham Lincoln was president. Um, it's, there's some in Europe, like in Stockholm. In Stockholm, sea level is falling. And it's falling at about the same rate as it was 130 years ago. Um, another one is um, at Sydney, Australia, um, at Fort Denison. There's been almost no sea level rise at all there. I've been to there, taken pictures of it. And if you look at pictures from Fort Denison from uh, you know, the 1880s, of this, the level of the high water mark from the 1880s, it isn't significantly different than it is now. Um, I've got a good one from 1871 from La Jolla, California, a good picture from 1870, a high tide picture, and I've taken one from a high tide picture, a contemporary one, and, and laid them on top of each other. And there's almost exactly the same. Um, so a lot of the sea level rise stuff which people have observed in some places is actually due to the land sinking, like, and that's particularly bad along the east coast of the United States. During the last ice age, Canada was covered with this very thick two miles of ice, and this pushed the land down in Canada, depressed the land, and it's sort of like if you push your thumb into a water balloon, it goes down where your thumb is, and then it 
blows up around it. And so what happened was during the last ice age, you know, Canada's land in Canada was depressed, and much of the land in the eastern United States got raised up. It was pushed up by um, this effect of the land pushing down and pushing on the mantle, which caused it to bubble up around the edges. But since the ice melted 20,000 years ago, the land along the east coast of the United States has been sinking. This is called isostasy. And it, so it looks like sea levels rising, but what's actually happening is the land is sinking. If you go to the west coast, we don't see that. We don't see sea, sea level rise on the west coast of the United States. It's just on the east coast. So it's largely just an illusion. And then in the, the Gulf Coast, um, we have a sort of different problem. Um, after these big floods, like I mentioned on the Mississippi in 1927, they put dams and levees up along to keep to keep the land from flooding. And so now what happens is um, this land, which used to we used to get floods coming down the Mississippi River, which would spread out over a wide area, drop silt, and it essentially raised the level of the land up. But that's not happening anymore because we don't allow these floods to occur. So the land appears to be sinking, um, and it, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's kind of the basics of it. So you always have to be really careful when you're looking at sea level rise stuff. Are you actually looking at the oceans rising, or are you looking at the land sinking? But in the few two few tide gauges, which have been stable for a long time, there's very little, if any, indication that sea level rise rates have increased significantly from what they were 150 years ago. You mentioned a rapid rise in sea level about, was it 400 feet between 16,000 and 8,000 years ago? What caused that? A melting of glaciers from the last ice age. You know, the, like Canada was covered with ice and a lot of um, a lot of the eastern United States was covered with ice at that time too, and much of Europe, northern Europe. So when that ice melted, that that all that water, which was locked up in ice on the land, then flowed down to the ocean and raised the level of the seas. Florida, during the last ice age, Florida was twice as, tw at least twice as large as it is now. So Florida has been shrinking for 20,000 years as a result of rising sea levels. Um, so eventually, yeah, Miami will be underwater eventually unless we go back into a new ice age. Uh, but this is something which has been going on for a very long time. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from out of town and just about anywhere. 1-866-740. Sorry, 1-866-740-4740. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, uh, before we go back to the phones, Tony, you wanted to, uh, to add a couple of points. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I wanted to mention that I have a new um, partner on, on my Real Climate Science um, website, and that's Kyrie. She's a Japanese climate skeptic, 
And she has been feeding me some important information based on stuff which we've been talking about, um, which I just wanted to throw out. So she says that she keeps she's great with statistics. She told me that there's only 277 stations around the world which have temperature data since the year 1880. And that's not a lot. And probably most of them are in the United States. Um, Interesting. Or, or perhaps, and then she sent me another statistic, which is that the, the number of the number of typhoons in the Pacific, according to the Japanese Meteorological Institute agency, has been trending down since the year 1951. Trending down. Ah, yeah. All right. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the phones. We have Ray checking in from Barrie, Ontario. Ray, welcome. Great, great show there, uh, and great guests you have there too. I have some pretty good knowledge about, about the Arctic and stuff like that. You know, the Arctic is full of volcanic vents. Up there, there's also vo- volcanoes under the ice. Uh, those vents, they open and close as the tectonic plates move. There's nothing you could do about it. Some of these, some of these vents actually, just like plumbing, they get clogged up. It, now. If you look a little bit further in the Arctic, you have a place called the Galco Ridge from Norway all the way to Siberia and go on through the Arctic there. The Galco Ridge is almost as deep as the Marianas Trench. Not that by that much, but it's very close. Lots of volcanic vents under there. So that's heating the water. It's heating underneath. The vents open and close. Uh, what was it? 2006, they're saying, they're saying, oh, the ice is melting, this and that. And uh, they were making the claim in February. Well, first of all, uh, 2006 in February up there, it was minus 60. And don't forget, there's no sunlight up there. Well, the volcanic vents were just blasting away, melting away. Now, if you look at the look at the planet, uh, a lot of the vents and volcanoes are around the equator. Now you have um, the, you have the Ring of Fire. Forget about that. But a lot of them are around the equator. Now centrifugal force; those things get clogged up also as the tectonic plates move. They close and open and stuff like that. So they have the pressure has to go somewhere. Nobody's ever looked at the thermals, and the environmentalists don't look at the thermals or anything like that. They're focused on one thing. Now, we could have a hell of a problem, and environmentalists are going to be saying, look over here. Meanwhile, we should have been looking somewhere else. Uh, I'm going to make one more comment, uh, Richard, if you'd be interested in some t- something like sure, that. Sure, sure. If, um, if you're looking for where the money is, uh, look to the Tides Foundation and look at Saudi Arabia and China, one of their biggest funders. And that's about all I got to say, and I'll listen to your answers off the air. But anyways, great guests. Um, love your show, and I love the guests you got today. Ray, thank you for that. Well, uh, Tony, uh, you have studied uh, volcanic activity, I believe, at uh, Los Alamos, haven't you? Yeah, I, um, we we did some really fun uh, mod, physical modeling of volcanoes out at a high-explosive testing site. And that would actually be quite a long story in itself. We had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> Did you want to, to comment on, on, on Ray talking about volcanic activity and vents, volcanic vents in the Arctic? Yeah, I, um, in, unless there would, had been a change, like since the, the 1970s. And during the 1970s, the ice built up you know, very thick in the Arctic. 
And unless there had been a change in volcanic activity, it, it would be really difficult for me to try to make a claim that it correlates somehow with the vol- you know, volcanoes, with the, the coming and going of the ice. I mean, why would volcanic activity be different now in the Arctic than it was 40 years ago? There, there, maybe it is, but uh, it's not something that I'm familiar with and would feel comfortable commenting about. All right, back to the live chat. And uh, Solar Warden writes, or asks, rather, what's with the complete lack of reliability in the long-term climate models, and how come they're essentially a forecast Ouija board? So let's talk about the IPCC uh, modeling. Uh, I, I mean, I think they've even admitted, buried in their reports, that these long these these forecasts are not reliable. They're they're a joke. They're just a toy. And I, I've worked on these climate models for the NAS, National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, you know, basically what they are is they they just take their weather models and then they just run them for a really long period of time. Well, we know that weather models are no good for more than like three or maybe five days, right? And then all of a sudden they think that they can run it out for a hundred years and have it be any value there were they're just meaningless you know just academics they get money for their computers and and for their computer models and they play with them and they imagine that they're doing something useful when in fact it's just garbage in garbage out and it brings in lots of money to people like the national center for atmospheric research and nasa and in academia so they're they're perfectly happy to play the game but from a scientific point of view, they're just toys, and they have no business using them in, um, you know, for policy decisions because they're garbage in, garbage out. They've they've never shown any accuracy. Of course, they lie about it. I was just someone was just telling me right this evening about how James Hansen and Michael Mann were were on some show or something today, and they were saying how. Um, Hansen's forecasts from 30 years ago were spot on when, in fact, they were a complete disaster. He had no idea what he was talking about. So, the, you know, they, they make these fake models and make their fake forecasts, and then they lie about them later, and that's how the game's played. Also, I would think that when there's a there's an there, – there are errors uh, in these models, and they might be over the first – you know, uh, six months, maybe those errors are not significant. But as you project outwards, those errors become amplified. And so by the time you get 10 years out, I, I would imagine that those errors would be would be huge. The data would be pretty much useless. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You get compounding errors and it starts out bad, it gets worse, and just gets worse. And they're of no value. I mean, they're literally, they literally have zero value in science. And they should never, they should never have been shown to policymakers. And these people should never claim that they're any value because they're not. They're a joke. All right. One final time out, Tony. Uh, hang in there. We'll uh, be back in a moment and we'll finish up Tony Heller from realclimatescience.com. And again, his uh, videos are posted now at newtube.app. Back with more. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Just reading a headline here, an article from the National Geographic Online 
from 2017, November 14, 2017. Get this. Climate change drove ISIS recruiting in Iraq. Uh, I mean, you, you, you hear these seemingly outlandish claims all the time that everything now is being caused by by climate change. But imagine terrorism now and ISIS recruiting is being caused by climate change. Now, here's the thing I don't understand. And, and they're now talking about climate refugees and how we have to take in millions of, of refugees because they're fleeing climate change. But if I'm not mistaken, Tony, these are projections of what's going to happen in the future. But but they're telling us it's happening now. So I'm kind, kind of confused. Well, you know, if you look at historical data, like historical data, famines, um, droughts, say in China, for example, when I was a kid, you know, in the 1960s, there were tens of millions of people dying in China from starvation. You know, they were having terrible, they, they had essentially no rain in China in 1961 in their agricultural areas. People were starving to so similar situations in India. And, and if you go back and you look at the history of droughts and famines in China, they've had a terrible drought and famine just about every year for the past 2,000 years. <laughs> and so this stuff's been going on forever. It's not climate change. You know, the, the, the big episode of climate refugees in the United States occurred, which we talked about earlier, was during the 1930s, the Dust Bowl, when millions of people fled the Midwest and moved out to California. And I don't think the California governor, Newsom, even knows about this when he talks about it. So we have had periods of, you know, changes in climate and changes in weather, which have led to huge periods of refugees. But the, the fact is that we've actually been in a period of very mild weather for a long time. You know, if you look, if you compare the sort of weather patterns we've had recently, in the United States and Canada, we have much fewer droughts than we used to. You know, people aren't aware of this, but the northeastern United States and the part, you know, in, in eastern Canada used to be in drought most of the time prior to 1970. Um, there, there were terrible droughts going on then. I remember going to my grandparents' house in, in on Long Island, New York, in the 19, 1965. New York City almost ran out of water several times during the 1960s. Um, they were fighting with Philadelphia for the last little bit of water in the Delaware River. They had signs up in restaurants, water by request only. You couldn't water your lawn. There were terrible forest fires in the northeastern U.S. and eastern Canada, um, you know, the, the, the word, the largest, actually the largest forest fire in Canada's history occurred in 1835, the Miramichi fire in New Brunswick. It was a massive fire. So we used to, it used to be much drier and they used to have fires. And over the last 50 years, you know, in the eastern, northeastern U.S. and eastern Canada, the weather has been much more mild than it used to be. So it's, it's, it's all based on superstition. It's not history. In, in terms of a famine, one would expect if the world is, in, in fact, greening, and you said I think NASA has acknowledged this, and with, with the, the concentration of carbon dioxide being the cause, would that also indicate that there would be an, a, a higher yield in terms of crops? 
Oh, yeah. Crop yields have been going up, increasing rapidly for the last 50 years. Starvation is way down. Malnutrition is way down. Deaths from natural disasters have plummeted. There were only 12,000 people dead from natural disasters in the entire world last year. You know, compared to 100 years ago when we had millions of people dying from natural disasters, if you, if you go to the Oxford University Our World on Data website, you can look at this. Life has gotten much better for humans over the last 50 years. You know, we, we eat better, we live better, you know, we live longer lives, you're much less likely to die from bad weather than people used to be. You know, it, like I said, it's all superstition. What these people claim is not based on history, it's not based on data, and it's certainly not based on science. And and uh, I guess to, 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 to take a page from Alex, Alex Epstein, the, the moral case for fossil fuels, how much of that uh, the, the betterment of humankind, fewer deaths from natural disasters is could be attributed to the use of fossil fuels. Well, the huge amount of it, people were able to live very comfortable, climate-controlled lives now because of fossil fuels. We, we can get light anytime we need it. We can get heat anytime we need it. We can get air conditioning anytime we need it. Most people don't experience extreme weather because because they live in a climate-controlled environment, but they watch CNN, and CNN tells, shows them pictures of floods and hurricanes and fires and tells them it's all going to come burn you down and it's all because of your bad behavior and you need to be punished in order to stop this, right? And, and you know, it, it, but it's not science. It's, it's a religion. It's, it's the same primitive beliefs. You know, in the 16th century, something like 15,000 people were burned at the stakes um, because it was they were it was believed that they were witches who were cooking the weather. They blamed bad weather on witches, you know. And now they blame bad weather on Donald Trump and Republicans. Hmm. But you know, it's it's the same mentality. You know what, what what makes me genuinely angry is that that this is being taught in in public schools, and uh, not just in public schools in in private schools. I'm sure uh, even religious schools and. Children are being traumatized. They are being taught that humankind is a cancer and the the earth is going to end and there's nothing much now we can do about it. It's too late to reverse these trends. Uh, and the children are, are hurting themselves. They are so despondent. This is absolute child abuse. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's not based on science. It, it's it's a religious belief. And it's it's horrible what they're doing. Uh, back to the YouTube chat. Layman Talks asks, uh, if Tony, if you have any insight about ghost temperature stations, ghost temperature stations. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I can tell you that in the United States, um, about half of the data currently being used by NOAA to calculate U.S. temperatures is imaginary. It's, it's from maybe perhaps what you call ghost stations where they don't actually have any data anymore. And what they do is they just make a, they have a computer model to calculate what they think the temperature would have been if they actually had temperature data. But if you look at the monthly data from NOAA, and I'm about to make a video about this. I'll probably make it tomorrow or the next day. Um, showing that about 50% of the current NOAA U.S. temperature data is 
stations which didn't report that much. They just make up numbers for it. So I get. I would think that's probably what ghost. What he meant by ghost stations. Yeah. All right. Do you think? Do you think? I say we're winning because you and I are simpatico on this, and and people like Patrick Moore and and. Um, uh, Timothy Ball, who's a good friend of the program. Are we winning this war? What does the latest polling say regarding uh, public opinion on on anthropogenic global warming? Well, you know, for, for people who are aware, people who, you know, go out on the Internet and do their own research. And, you know, I think we're probably doing pretty well with that group. But the problem is that most people do, don't do that. Most people... I think they're just going to believe whatever they hear from politicians or um, from CNN or, or wherever. And so I would guess that we're probably not winning among the overall population, but among educated people who are willing to go out and research stuff for themselves and, and get the accurate information, we're probably doing extremely well because we're presenting information which is easy which is accurate it's logical and it's easy to verify so anybody who makes the effort to do it will come to the same conclusion which i'm you know trying to present and patrick moore and tim ball are presenting i i thought that you know perhaps the scandal at east anglia climate uh, gate would have been the nail in the coffin the final nail in the coffin but perhaps the, the final nail in the coffin won't come until uh, let's say another decade from now when none of these dire things that they're predicting come to pass. And then finally we can move on to the next uh, fraudulent crisis, I guess. Well, you know, they've been making these predictions for forever. You know, 1989, the um, top guy in the UN environment program said we only had until the year 2000 to stop global warming and then entire nations were going to be wiped from the face of the earth and everything was going to fall apart. So they've been doing this for decades and they just keep, you know, doubling down on it and, and the press course, nobody remembers what they said in the past. So <laughs> I'm not as hopeful as you are about that. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much for hanging out the last two hours. Again, it's realclimatescience.com and the new video platform, newtube.app. A great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Tony Heller. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.